I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On. What you're about to hear is important, but unsettling. If children are in earshot, you may want to listen another time. In mid-July, in a rural part of Afghanistan, two sisters made a promise. They had just arrived home for their semester break from their boarding school in Kabul, and their grandmother came to see them carrying sides. The Taliban resurgent was drawing closer to their village. This woman told her granddaughters to take these curved blades, and she told them that if Taliban fighters ever came to the house, the girls must be swift. There would be no time to hesitate. If the Taliban comes into this house, she said, use these sides to kill yourselves. The girls promised that they would. That is Shabana Basish Rasakh, the co-founder and president of the first and only boarding school for Afghan girls. It's called the School of Leadership Afghanistan, SOLA for short. In Pashto, SOLA means peace. Those two sisters are among the nearly 100 students enrolled at the school. After their summer break, they made it safely to Kabul through Taliban checkpoints, just in time for the start of the new academic year. They even kissed the ground when they arrived because they were so happy to be safe on campus. Not even three weeks later, Kabul fell. Thankfully, Shabana, the teachers, and the students, including those two girls, evacuated together to Rwanda. When we spoke, you could occasionally hear birds there chirping through her windows. My first question was about those two girls. I haven't been able to stop thinking about them since Shabana recounted that conversation in an op-ed for The Post. There have been stomach-churning reports in recent weeks that Taliban commanders are demanding communities they conquer turn over unmarried women to become the wives of their fighters. This is a reprehensible form of sexual violence. Nevertheless, it is beyond painful to imagine how bad the situation must be for a grandma, a grandma, to tell her granddaughters to take their own lives rather than being taken by the Taliban. Apparently, though, this has been a common conversation lately. Here's what Shabana had to say. I can guarantee you that every single family across Afghanistan, especially those who have young and married daughters, um, had a conversation and probably an incredibly difficult and heartbreaking conversation. People do not accept the Taliban rule and their ideology and the way they have interpreted the religion of Islam. But families who have daughters and who don't agree to an arrangement like this 
um, have very limited option. It's either going along with it, which they absolutely don't want, or uh, choosing to end the lives of their young young daughters. I can't imagine having to make a decision like that for a child in my family, for a young girl. You burned the academic records of your students in an effort to protect them. This couldn't have been an easy decision, especially because your students worked so hard to earn those grades, and also because the Taliban burned such records when they last came to power. They wanted to erase that any girls had been schooled at all. What kind of retribution might families face if the Taliban finds out that they dared to educate their daughters? We at SOLA have students who come to us from 28 of the 34 provinces across Afghanistan. Our very small boarding school is a mini Afghanistan in the most beautiful way that I can possibly express. I have at my school daughters of some very conservative families, including mullahs, whose daughters are at SOLA. And about two years ago, uh, one of the mullahs in a far away village who chose to secretly educate his daughter at Sola, came to speak with me and during our admission season, uh, trying to convince me to enroll his eight-year-old daughter at Sola, uh, mainly because uh, he was telling me about how in, in their village of X thousand people, um, there were no schools for girls and that he's already seen the impact of educating one of his daughters at Sola and wanted the younger one to join as well. And I tried to encourage him to wait at least a year or two because his eight-year-old daughter was too young to join Sola. And he was worried that um, in a year or two, it would get even harder for his daughter to be admitted at Sola. And he, he was rightly concerned, uh, given every year we had more and more families submitting application on behalf of their daughters. And and then as he was leaving uh, my office, uh, he turned around, and, and this was uh, about two months before the U.S. signed an agreement uh, with the Taliban. And he said, Sister, I promise that when the Taliban come to Kabul city, you will burn any record indicating that my daughter was a student um, at Sola. And I was stunned, mainly because his main conversation with me was about convincing me to enroll his eight-year-old daughter. And an oh, by the way, conversation was, please make sure I'm not exposed when the Taliban take over. I'm so grateful he mentioned that. I may have been conscious of the sensitivity of um, these documents already, but he really nailed it for me in a sense that these families from rural parts of Afghanistan who have chosen to uh, send their daughters to a boarding school, uh, accepting a lot of risks already, who are willing to fight for their daughters to have a chance to have access to quality education. Um, I had these conservative fathers who would tell me, look, one of the main reasons I'm sending my daughter to Sola is because at home, when they, when they leave home and before they get to the nearest public school, um, they, I know my daughter's experience, at the very least, verbal harassment. 
on the way um, to school and on the way back home. And by having them live in a boarding school, that's not an issue. When the Taliban last ruled Afghanistan, you were young and your parents sent you to secret schools. Your older sister had to wear a burqa and she had to be accompanied by a male family member. So your parents dressed you as a boy so that you could be her male escort to and from school. What were these secret schools like? Why did your parents take the risk to send you and your sisters there? You know, a lot of people, when I share the story, tell me how brave I was. And I immediately correct them to say I wasn't the brave one. It was my parents. It was their vision for us. And I remain forever grateful to my parents. During the Taliban, I attended several different secret schools, mostly in my neighborhood. But this one, uh, when my sister started attending, I accompanied her. And that was the best way both of us could receive an education was to minimize the attention that she would get um, by my accompanying her as her little brother. Everyone in the secret school knew I was a girl. It wasn't a big secret. As a lot of people, uh, you know, know stories of girls having to dress as a boy during, during the Taliban regime. For us, it was a way to minimize attention that we would get on the way to the school. And, you know, we would walk different routes every day. We would take different substreets to make sure that we avoided creating a pattern, which was often associated with schooling. For my family, when we would come home and, and those scary times when we would ask them not to send us to the secret school anymore, my parents, they had so much patience when they would explain to us that in life um, we could lose everything that we have any materials that we own can be taken away from us. We could be forced to leave our homes <laughs> during a war. I mean, like, look at what just happened to thousands of Afghans. But the one thing that no one can take away from, from you, my parents would remind us, is your education, your ability to think for yourself, your ability to be an independent thinker. I know at that time uh, these words didn't mean much. But it was only after the fall of Taliban regime in 2002 when I attended a public school for the very first time uh, when I found myself in a classroom where more than 90-some percent of my classmates were at least six years older than I was that I finally realized uh, what my parents had truly done uh, for me and my sisters. So that experience was life-changing. I am who I am today because of that time, because of the bravery of these amazing women um, who opened their homes to young girls like me to educate us at a very personal risk because of my parents and their bravery who knew that if they were caught, they would be punished. But for them, the way they looked at it was that the greater risk at that time was to raise their daughters without an education. And thank God I have parents who thought that way. That's such an incredible story. And you have such a good line in the first op-ed you wrote for us, which is, educated girls grow to become educated women, and educated women will not allow their children to become terrorists. And that, I think, in a sentence, is such an incredible distillation of one of the values of, of education. And 
The enemy understands this too. Al-Qaeda's main propaganda arm, they released a video featuring Ayman al-Zawahi on Saturday, the anniversary of 9-11, in which he decried education efforts, especially education about peace and tolerance. And he called on adherents of their jihadist philosophy to fight this battle at all levels, beliefs, thought, education, politics, and war. So you've seen these forces opposed to education because they recognize how hard it is to spread their ideology of hatred when people are educated. Taliban leaders keep saying they've changed, that it's not going to be like before when you had to go to those secret schools. What makes you confident that they haven't? I have often found myself wondering what the world would be like if policymakers uh, understood the power of education, and the power of girls' education, as much as the terrorists do. Because if they did, we would be in a very different world. The terrorist groups understand that the very real threat to their existence is an educated girl. Even outside of Afghanistan, we have more than 150 million girls across the world who are not in school. And if we really want to eliminate threat of terrorism from places like Afghanistan, the best way we can do that is to um, accept and adopt a long-term view of investment in girls' education. I truly believe that. And I hope that we can repeat this every day until our policymakers and politicians understand that as well. I remember this Joe Biden quote from 2010, back when he was vice president, and he was talking to Richard Holbrook, who wrote it down in his diary. He's since passed away, but he said, kind of arguing against sending more troops to Afghanistan. He said, I'm not sending my boy back there to risk his life on behalf of women's rights. It just won't work. That's just not what they're there for. And what you're saying is if you want to defeat the terrorists, which is what he thinks they're there for, the way you do it is to invest in civil society and girls' education because that is how you change the society and how you fight extremism. Absolutely. The the, the strongest allies... Uh, the United States or any other Western country worried about threat of terrorism coming from from places like Afghanistan or the region are the girls and women. If you look at what has been happening recently, it is mostly women who uh, poured into the streets of cities across Afghanistan protesting, demanding their Islamic right to uh, education, to public space. And, you know, you have seen some powerful images coming out of Afghanistan where women are facing Taliban with guns pointed at them. And yet they are they're continuing to protest. In my op-ed, I had one uh, simple request from, from the readers, from now the listeners. Don't look away. Because the last time you looked away, it was devastating for the United States and for Afghanistan. Don't do that again. We'll be right back after a short break. 
This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. One of the inspiring stories of not looking away is your own father. He was a general in Afghanistan's army in 1996 when the Taliban first came to power. He was offered political asylum in Germany and declined it. Your family stayed through those dark years of the Taliban regime's first reign, which is why you were in those secret schools. Then you graduated magna cum laude in 2011 from Middlebury College in Vermont, and you earned a master's in public policy from Oxford. When your education was complete, your father wanted you and your siblings to come home to serve the people of Afghanistan. That same motivation that kept him from leaving the country when the Taliban took over in the 90s is what inspired you to start the boarding school. This time, though, was different. And you write in your latest piece that you lost your temper with your parents when they initially refused to leave as the Taliban moved into Kabul. Eventually, though, you were able to convince them to come with you. How hard was it? I think I will carry this um, guilt uh, with me forever. Um, My father spent all his life making sure that we didn't become refugees and that we use our education to serve uh, the people of Afghanistan who needed us. Um, I remember countless conversations with my father when I was a student in the United States, and it always came back to this reminder. Um, He would say, look, I know you can get a job. I know you're smart. Uh, I know you're capable. But any job uh, you take in the U.S., there are a lot of equally qualified people who can do that job. So the United States is not going to miss out on on you. Uh, Come home. Uh, Be people here need you. And I am so grateful that I grew up in a household where my parents were so conscious of the need in Afghanistan for educated Afghans to to come back and serve. For me, it was never a question of do I stay in the United States or go back home. I went home after I completed my education and I never, ever regretted it. The conversation I recently had with my parents, it was incredibly difficult. The way he put it to me, he's like, I've lived through many waves of war. This would be yet another wave that I will live through. And I, I, I very strongly disagreed with him. And, 
you know, my father is my father is a general. He's always been a general, and I've always felt like a young soldier in front of him. But this time, I got loud and I said, "That's not true." And and mainly because I personally felt responsible because I have talked about what he had done under the Taliban regime to educate me and my sisters. And I told him I've exposed him. He can't, he can't stay behind. And I know it was not his decision to leave. And because it was not his decision to leave, I, I know I'm going to carry that guilt forever. Tell me about your father's garden and why he always wanted you to stay through sundown. <laughs> I grew up in the in this house, and I remember, I think just before the Taliban took over uh, Kabul city the first time, my father had bought this house. It was uh, a flat land. There wasn't much greenery in, in, in the yard. And I remember when my father was hiding from the Taliban regime, you know, in the 1990s, he turned to gardening, uh, reading when he could, because we couldn't have a lot of books at the house. And um, his very small gray radio that he had, that he used to listen to world news. And um, our yard turned into a garden. In those days, we had fruit trees, we had all sorts of vegetables, um, my siblings and I were involved in, you know, watering the vegetables. And it was a fun activity. I don't think at that time I thought it was fun <laughs> to water. <laughs> Kids never do. You always learn to appreciate it later. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, when I look back, um, when I talk about having some fun memories from my childhood, it was precisely these kinds of moments. It's climbing the trees to pick an apple or... Um, the grapevine, uh, and it was all really, really beautiful. And then uh, over over the years, our yard has evolved from fruit and vegetable garden to a flower garden, and uh, we still have some fruit trees, and, and the grapevines are still there. But I remember recently, my especially um, uh, after my father had made a few trips to the U.S. for various graduations for my siblings. Uh, he was always really amazed by by the beauty and greenery of the U.S. and always wanted to bring back bulbs of flowers <laughs> back to Afghanistan uh, with him when he could. And I remember one evening when I uh, went home to visit, I was busy, I needed to leave, and he insisted that I stay. He said, just, just sit a few more minutes. And we were sitting in the garden and drinking green tea. Uh, suddenly, as the uh, sun sunset uh, came upon us, I, we were sitting right next to some flowers that uh, the petals suddenly bloomed, just, you know, making this beautiful putt-putt-putt sound. And um, I was really amazed. <laughs> I was quite surprised because I hadn't seen anything like it. And as I was expressing my uh, surprise, uh, I could see my father was looking at me and he was just enjoying the uh, surprise on my face. And um, he was very, very proud of um, his garden and the flowers that he was nurturing. And now no one's taking care of the garden. 
No. Well, in my book, you and your students are really the flowers of Afghanistan. And it's so tragic to imagine all those bulbs and flowers blooming elsewhere. Your homeland will suffer such a brain drain from all these intelligent, brave, wonderful young women taking their talents elsewhere. And thankfully, they have been able to. We've talked so much about the nutrients of the brain and the mind of intellectual pursuits for the last 20 or so minutes. But I want to toggle down the hierarchy of needs. This week, the United Nations warned that millions of Afghans who didn't get out of the country could run out of food before the arrival of winter. A million children are at risk of starvation if their immediate needs aren't met. Even before the Taliban took over, Afghanistan was confronting a dire food crisis amid a serious drought. What are you hearing, Shabana, from people left behind in your country? I'm afraid I don't have much positive news to share on that front. And I can't lie on behalf of people who reach out to me. A lot of people are still in a state of shock. There's a lot of fear. People can't access their bank accounts. You see videos and images of thousands and thousands of people lining up uh, in front of banks even before 8 a.m. And uh, they can only withdraw $200 per week. And it's it's devastating. It's um, I remember as a young kid how long it took for the government to get people to trust the banks and saving their money in the banks. And I see all of that uh, being undone at such a rapid scale. It is uh, horrifying. I'm deeply concerned um, for the uh, immediate safety and well-being of people. But I know these girls and thousands of other Afghans who have been forced out of their homes right now who will one day return and contribute to making Afghanistan a better place. This is a temporary setback for us. The situation in no way will last forever. Afghanistan is simply um, not the kind of country, the people are not the kind of people who will allow for this to happen and to become the new norm forever. I don't know how, but we will figure out a way out of this. I know that not paying attention to Afghanistan will have really devastating consequences for the rest of the world. Um, So I hope the international community, the UN, realizes this sooner than later and intervenes to hold the Taliban accountable to make sure that women and girls have the ability to go to school and um, that Afghanistan continues to remain a home, not just for the Pashtun ethnicity, but remains the home of every single Afghan who lives there, the Hazaras, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Sunnis and Shias, and uh, many, many uh, ethnic minority groups um, that make Afghanistan a beautiful place. And that is what we're working towards right now. As we've spoken there, I heard birds chirping in the background there in Rwanda, and that feels like such a kind of a universal symbol of hope for the future. We're not going to forget and we're not going to look away. Thank you. And uh, and we're so honored that you have, have written these op-eds for us. And 
and we're so we're rooting hard for for you and and all of your your girls. Thank you very much, James. It's a pleasure speaking with you today. What was most striking about chatting with Shabana was her hopefulness about the future, despite everything she's experienced. She repeatedly described being in Rwanda as a study abroad experience for her students. That's more than some kind of polite euphemism. It's a refusal to accept that she and those girls won't be able to go home to Kabul and the 28 provinces they come from. Shabana said the Rwandans have been especially kind to her and her students because many of them had personal experience as refugees during that country's civil war in the 1990s. I'm pleased to share with you that Shabana is the Washington Post's newest contributing columnist. She will keep writing for our Global Opinions section about her homeland and the experiences of her students. In an op-ed for Friday's newspaper, Shabana poignantly makes the case that the West should welcome refugees, not as a burden, but a blessing. Please, Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, with editing from Allison Michaels, Renita Jablonski, and Michael Duffy. Our sound engineer is Dara Hirsch. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. You can find the links to the op-eds by Shabana in our show notes. Her latest piece includes an illustration of her dad's garden, abandoned, but not forgotten. I'm James Homan, and I'll be back next Friday with another edition of Please Go On, because there's always more to say.